Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Showing Up to Life podcast and YouTube channel. My name is Art Burns, and I'm really happy to be here with you today. Normally, I use the word excited, but today happens to be the day in which we have turned our clocks forward in America. And um, I don't know if it's just that my body is so accustomed and trained to sleeping so poorly, because I really, I mean, I have this... A wonderful, beautiful alarm clock that uh, actually one of my listeners bought me for a, uh, a Christmas present, which I love. It's called the One Clock, and I'm not spot. I'm not, you know, it's not a paid advertising <laughs> advertisement or anything. But can I tell you, I have not had to have an alarm clock for a long time. But using this clock is like, ah, oh, it's so sweet. The the sounds that come with this thing to wake you up. It's it's revolutionary. So I strongly I strongly encourage you. Pardon me. See, I'm so tired. I can't even speak today. It's kind of a, an awkward place for a podcaster. <laughs> but um, but yeah, the one clock, amazing. So anyway, I did not even have to wake up this morning by my alarm clock, right? So I have no reason to believe. I have no reason to be tired as a result of the time change. But for whatever reason, I hardly slept at all last night. And so I am making very good friends with my most powerful tea that I have. <laughs> and my most powerful tea is probably about maybe three quarters of a cup of coffee. So that gives you an idea of what I'm working with here. It's not a lot. <laughs> But anyway, I'm just trying to be present with it. I'm trying to, um, you know, sit with it, allow it to be, right? That's the important thing is to allow whatever's feeling to be there, right? Because the, the problem here is in times gone by, yes, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to give myself some caffeine so that I can have energy to do things like this, right? Um, if I didn't have to work, though, I could just sit around and just be present with the, the tiredness, right? But but even though I am interceding or, or yeah, interceding in, on my own behalf with caffeine to try to help me, um, you know, energetically, you know, I'm still, I'm not practicing aversion towards it. That's the key, right? Because no matter how much I don't like being tired, <laughs> there is nothing that's going to happen other than sleeping that's going to change the fact that I'm tired, you know, yeah, well, I mean, obviously, a little caffeine is going to help me a little bit, but it's not the same thing, right? So so I'm still tired. I've just got some energy <laughs> to talk for a half hour, right? Um, so so anyway, the point is that that in anything that we're experiencing, right, whether it's being too tired one day, maybe even being too jittery another day, right, Be feeling very stressed about something, whatever is going on, the first step is to be aware of it, but but to be aware of it in a non-judging way. Because the problem is, if I sit here and tell myself, oh gosh, this is going to be the worst day ever. I don't like this. This is going to be terrible. I'm so tired. Everything's going to be so hard today. Well, the problem is that my brain is listening to me say that the whole time, right? And so it becomes a, a self-fulfilling prophecy at a certain level, right? I don't know if that's that language sounds sounds a little strong for what we're talking about, prophecy, but but um but the idea though is that we we convince ourselves, right? And so that's the judgment, right? Tired is just tired, right? A thought is just a thought. An emotion is just an emotion. An experience is just an experience. It's, it's how I judge that experience that determines whether I stay in my place of regulation 
or I leave my place of regulation. Now, regulation is, is almost always exited through negative emotions, right? Because negative emotions are based in fear. Fear is what you know, the, the only response that my body and your body has to fear is stress, okay? So, so when we are in the negative mental state of aversion, we are only going to experience negative emotions from that state, okay? So therefore, we're, you know, by, by not accepting that you're tired, you're making it harder on yourself. You're bringing more suffering than whatever the exhaustion was bringing in the first place. All right. <clears throat> so that's a little tip, a little pro tip for you um, of someone who's uh, often finds himself sleep deprived for a variety of reasons. Um, but again, pardon me, this is not only with regards to sleep, right? This is also like if I'm in a bad mood, right? Like I can allow myself to be in that bad mood. If I you know, scold myself for being in a bad mood or tell myself, you got to snap out of it, right? That's part of that aversion. And that is going to, you know, like I often tell my, uh, I, I use this quote a lot with um, with people with whom I'm, I work, um, you know, in the history of calming down, never once has telling someone to calm down resulted in actually calming down, right? Well, that happens for us too, internally. Right. If I'm telling myself that I got to, you know, be in a better mood, it's it's not going to work. That's the thing. Right. Because, again, it's all coming from that place of aversion, which is, you know, necessarily producing those negative emotions. Right. And so this brings us back to the. um you know, the concept of skillfulness. Right. Because, you know, I, I use that word a lot because it's really it's it's intrinsic to what we're talking about with this work, okay? Because the unskilled person, right, engages in that aversion automatically, right? I feel tired, that's bad. And now I'm dealing with stress on top of the on top of being tired. 77% or more of, of American adults, um, I'm assuming or more, but but as of a couple of year, years ago, 77% of American adults live with chronic stress, right? That's no mistake, right? And and a lot of that stress, yes, some of it is coming from the pressures that we're under, right? You know, in America, we are under enormous pressure to, um, you know, financial pressure, time pressure, um, you know, media pressure, propaganda, all that kind of stuff is, is happening all the time. And, and, and when we're exposed to that, it's, it's deeply impacting us, right? And so that is partially what's causing the stress. But of course, the chronic nature of the stress indicates the fact that we are not acting skillfully with that stress, right? Because even if I feel stress or I experience stress, even for one whole day, I have the control to come down from that stress for the next day, right? But only if I've developed the skills to do so, right? And that's what we talk about here, the skills, right? And so, so one of these skills or, or one of the ways in which um, skillfulness shows up is, you know, again, having control over where I decide that I'm putting my attention. That, that's really what it is. That's, that's really the core of it, right? Because that's even true for aversion, right? Like if, if I can choose, not if I can choose, but <laughs> I can choose to pay attention to acceptance over aversion, 
I can choose to pay attention to letting go over clinging. I can choose to pay attention to non-judging awareness over, you know, judging and, and delusion as we talk about right? These are choices that I have, but I can only make that choice. I can only have that control from a place of skill, right? And so, so I've told you all here many, many times that this is not a Buddhist podcast or a Buddhist YouTube channel, right? I do not personally practice Buddhism. Um, I am very well aware of a lot of Buddhism, like a lot of these books that you see behind me are about Buddhism. They're written by Buddhist monks and nuns and, and they're, they cover a lot of Buddhism. So I have a, a strong foundation of knowledge of Buddhism. And I always say <laughs> that if someone who, who was a practitioner of Buddhism were to, were to follow me around all day and like, you know, kind of interview me like they're writing my biography or something, right? In the end, they would, they would come to the conclusion that I am practicing Buddhism without practicing Buddhism, right? Because everything I read about it, I'm like, oh, that's what I do. <laughs> I just don't call it that, <laughs> right? Um, but there are some really important um, aspects of Buddhism that, that are really helpful to understand, even if we're not going to practice Buddhism per se, right? Because the, the, the structure of Buddhism, well, there, there is a structure to learning Buddhism, let's put it that way, right? Whereas what I teach and what I practice is more of a, a sort of, you know, it's, it, it doesn't include any of the the philosophy or the dogma surrounding, and there's very little dogma involved with, with Buddhism. It's really more of a philosophy than, than dogma, right? And, um, and of course, the philosophy aligns with everything that I believe, but again, it's really mostly a language issue, right? Um, but anyway, the point of my saying this is that the Buddha himself talked about skillfulness as well. Right. In fact, there's a, a quote that I recently read that says that the, I think the Buddha said, you know, we must banish all unskillful thoughts or unskilled thoughts, maybe. And that's what I'm talking about. Right. Like the unskilled thoughts are the aversion and the clinging and the delusion. Right. And we've talked about this here before. This is not groundbreaking. But one of the ways in which, and, and in Buddhism, and this is the part of Buddhism that I don't necessarily like, and I think it, it you know, kind of reminds me of Catholic school and stuff like that, right? Which I, I consider myself a recovering Catholic. That's nothing against the, the religion of Catholicism or Christianity, because that too, I feel that if a, if a, a priest was to walk around with me and, and, you know, interview me, he would say, this guy's living a Christian life too, right? So, so I'm not telling you that anything's wrong with Christianity or Catholicism. I'm just saying that in my experience with Christianity and Catholicism, particularly with my family, there's a lot of trauma. And so I need to not be a practicing Catholic. And that's why I consider myself, again, a, a recovering Catholic. And yeah, it's a little tongue-in-cheek, you know, especially for those of us who were forced to go to all-boys Catholic high school, you know, which is just, it's just the most unnatural place that you can be. And yes, there were priests who were very handsy. And yes, that was all part of it. And so... There's a lot there. So please understand, I don't mean to, to you know, insult anybody out there who may be a practicing Catholic or Christian because there are, the, the religion is built on beautiful concepts of really the same thing that Buddhism is, right? It's built on the concepts of presence and love and compassion 
And that's what Buddhism talks about too, right? But that's what we talk about here in a secular way, right? But the reason I'm saying all this is because there is one set of concepts or, you know, well, as I started to say, you know, one of the things about Buddhism is that there's there's these, um, you know, they have these different sort of, I guess, teachings, but it's very rigid. It feels rigid to me anyway. So there are things like the um, the eightfold path of Buddhism, right, which kind of lays out how you live like a Buddha, right? And again, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. It's just something that doesn't vibe with me, right, to like have these rules and structure. Again, it brings me back to all-boys Catholic high school, which was a very unpleasant experience for me. So I prefer to just kind of approach it a little bit more fluidly, a little bit more loosely, right? But there's one thing that I want to share with you here that is kind of one of these um, concepts from Buddhism. It's referred to, I don't know the, the Pali name for it, right? There, there is a Pali name for it, but I don't know what that is. I can't pronounce it even if I was reading it, right? So, <clears throat> but, but they, they translate it to be the, the four heavenly abodes, which is really a beautiful concept, right? Just these heavenly homes, right? Um, they're also, I heard it recently referred to as the four uh, traits of an, the four traits of a boundless mind, I think it was called, which is also very, very beautiful, right? And so I want to talk about these four, but but really I just want to kind of mention three of them and I want to really talk about the fourth, you know, because I mentioned this in a, I did talk about this in a video not too long ago, um, but it only got nine views. So I think, I think we could all review this again, right? For whatever reason, that video got very few views. Normally I get about 30 or 40 and this one only got nine. So, so we're going to review this again, okay? But these four heavenly abodes, right, is really, really beautiful. So, so the first three, again, are relatively, well, the first two are very simple, and we talk about this all the time here. And the third and fourth we'll talk about in a little bit more, we'll flesh those out a little bit more, okay? So the first two, love and compassion, right? Now, love is in the sense of like meta love, right? Loving kindness, if you will, right? Just the ability to just just want to, to, to love what's going on around us, right? Very simple, right? It's a verb, love, right? Um, the second is compassion. We talk about that here a lot, right? The ability to, uh, to turn towards the suffering of another or ourselves and to stand with that suffering, remembering that the word compassion itself comes from the root, uh, the Latin root, uh, cum pare, which means to suffer with, okay? And the third one, is equanimity. Now, equanimity is, you know, in this context, what it means is, is, you know, meeting life exactly evenly, no matter what's going on. And so what that means is that I can be the same in the face of somebody who is handing me flowers as much as I can be. I can be exactly the same with somebody who's yelling at me, right? That equanimity is about how I approach life. And again, this is where it's important to recognize this as a skill of equanimity. Just like there's a skill of love and a skill of compassion, there is a skill of equanimity, okay? Because it's not easy to do that. It's not automatic, right? Because when somebody's yelling at me, I feel threatened. And that threat makes me feel, you know, that's a fear-based thing, which makes me go into stress, which, which makes me judge things, which makes me, puts me into that closed off, you know, aversive mind, <clears throat> right? 
So, so left alone, <laughs> you know, it's very hard to believe that anybody could just sort of have these skills without any kind of, um, you know, training. Right. In the same way that, that you wouldn't expect somebody who's never held a basketball, right, that, that, that when they're 20 years old, they'll make like a hook shot, like nothing but net. Right. It's not possible. Or, I mean, there's flukes, of course, but the chances are very, very low that somebody's going to have that natural innate talent to be able to do a hook shot from the paint and, uh, you know, and put it in the net, nothing, you know, with no rim, no backboard and stuff like that, right? That takes practice. That takes skill. And that skill, again, is developed through practice, right? So equanimity is the same way, right? Nobody would be expected to just naturally have equanimity. Now, some people, if you're brought up in a, in a home in which equanimity is practiced, well, then you're going to have more of a latent sort of base for that equanimity, right? So, so that certainly exists. But as far as, a, as an innate skill, not really. <laughs> I wouldn't say so. I wouldn't say that anybody naturally just has the skill of equanimity. Not to say that there aren't, you know, exceptions to the rule, right? But then it's also important to remember, though, that, that you know, there's nature versus nurture, right? So even if somebody did have, like, even if we were naturally predisposed to equanimity, our society and our culture and our schooling and our, our you know, what our parents are going through and stuff, that kind of trains us out of equanimity right? We're trained to, to, you know, gravitate towards the things that we see as good and, and repel from the things that we feel are bad, right? So equanimity is taking away that, that whole attraction avoidant, um, you know, process. And again, it just needs to be practiced, right? It can be done, right? But it needs to be practiced, all right? And really, that's what, again, non-judging awareness is equanimity, Right, because if I don't judge something as good or bad, like um, like one of the books written by a Buddhist monk, um, Yonggi Mingyur Rinpoche, uh, talks about um, how you know how you know somebody yelling at me and somebody singing to me, the only difference is how the molecules of air are are you know vibrating when they hit my eardrum. That's truly the only difference there physically. Anything else is just the intention of the other person, which cannot impact me, right? Like that doesn't hurt me unless I judge it in a certain way, right? All right. <clears throat> so moving on to the fourth is, and this is really what I wanted to talk about. I want to give you a practice that you can use for this because I actually just co-created this practice with one of my wonderful partners. I mean, I, I don't like the word clients. So I've been using partner lately. But my friend, partner, <laughs> colleague, co client, whatever you want to refer to it as, um, refer to her as, um, we kind of came up with this together, and I'm really excited, okay? So this fourth abode, this fourth heavenly abode, this fourth um, quality of the, of the boundless mind, which I believe it was called also in this uh, beautiful book I'm reading by Sharon Salzberg, which by the way, yes, I've been referring to reading this book. It's like a 120 page book and I've been reading for two weeks, <laughs> which is astounding to me because I'll usually knock out 120 pages in two days, you know? Um, but this book is so beautiful that I find myself reading like two or three paragraphs and then I have to close it. And I have to just sit with what she's saying. So really, really, really good book. But anyway, um, the fourth heavenly abode <clears throat> is 
sympathetic joy. Now, we could also call it empathetic joy, which might make it a little bit easier to understand, right, or to, to sort of identify with. Sympathetic joy, or, or as I say, empathetic joy, right? Now, most of the time when we consider empathy and we consider sympathy, right, which are really just the same thing, there's not much difference between sympathy and empathy. If you look the two up in the dictionary, virtually the same, uh, the same kind of uh, um, definition, the ber- almost word for word, right? <clears throat> but the thing is that we are always seeing those things as a means by sensing, because empathy and sympathy are about feeling what someone else is feeling, right? But in almost every case, we consider that, especially when we talk about sympathy, we we consider that in the context of a negative, right? That I'm feeling someone's pain, right? But the reality is that the same mechanisms that are used in my body to experience empathy for someone's pain, right, can also be used to feel someone's joy, right? What are these symptoms, these systems, rather, of of empathy? Well, the first one, the simple one, is the way in which, you know, if you and I were sitting here having a conversation, we would actually be mimicking each other's um, facial expressions. And we're doing that because by, because the way the nerve endings in the, in the facial muscles work together and, and the way they come back to my brain, by me mimicking your facial expression, it tells me what your belief is or what you're feeling or most importantly, your intention. Yeah. In other words, can I trust you? Are you safe or do you mean me harm? Right. Because if I put your face on, it's like this, like, whoa, no, I feel like I'm ready to attack somebody. I'm in danger. <laughs> right. Or if I see the smile, it's like, oh, wow, no, I feel like I'm, I'm moving close to this person. I feel safe. Right. There's also the whole vagus nerve mechanism that we have, the whole, as, uh, as T, uh, Stephen Porges, Dr. Stephen Porges talks about, neuroception that actually my nervous system can feel your nervous system. My nervous system can feel things around me that I can't feel. This is what um, uh, Dr. Porges talks about with like airport security, for instance, right? Or, or, you know, any kind of security measures. We know in our mind that having these big, you know, metal detectors and big guys standing there with guns and stuff, I know in my mind that that's keeping me safe, Right. But the reality is that when I walk up to that situation, my nervous system senses danger. (laughs) So while we're trying to keep ourselves safe, we're also making ourselves scared, right? So (laughs) so that is also a way in which I can pick up on what other people are are experiencing. It's not just with, um, you know, not just with uh, security measures. But for instance, if you and I were sitting here talking, not only would we be mimicking each other's facial expressions and also gestures, we're doing that too, because that's also giving me a feeling for how you're feeling, right? But also our breathing would synchronize with each other. Our heartbeats would synchronize with each other, Right? And then, of course, there's the granddaddy of them all, which is the mirror neurons, right? That there are actual neurons in my brain and neurons in your brain, which literally feel what they see us doing, right? So if you're eating an ice cream cone, the mirror neurons in my in my brain aren't saying, ooh, that looks good, that ice cream cone. No, the mirror neurons are saying, this ice cream is so delicious, 
even though I'm not touching an ice cream cone and I'm not eating an ice cream cone. I use ice cream cones specifically because that's how they found mirror neurons when a monkey who's, they were, they were doing um, uh, experiments to map out the pleasure centers in a monkey's brain. And one day one of the researchers was eating an ice cream and the monkey's brain lit up as though he was eating a banana or something like that. Again, it's not uh, you know, it's not like, ooh, that looks good. I wonder what that tastes like. No, in your brain, your physical neurons are literally experiencing what I'm experiencing. Okay, so these are the mechanisms by which we are wired to feel each other, right? And of course, the deeper our self-awareness, the deeper our empathy, right? The more skillful our empathy is, is based not on what we know about the other person, but what we can feel accurately about ourselves, okay? So these are all important aspects, but the, the important, the most important thing that I'm trying to get across to you here, though, is that we can use this not just to feel each other's pain. We can use it to feel each other's joy and each other's happiness and each other's well-being, each other's excitement, and I want to tell you how you can do this, okay? <laughs> so there's a, a, a very traditional practice, and this goes back to Buddhism, right? Again, this is a, a very traditional practice, right? The practice of loving kindness meditation, right? What it involves, and there's different forms that it can take, different ways you can approach it, right? But essentially, the, the, the base of the practice is to picture three different people in your mind. Now, some people add a fourth, but, but I work with three, and I'll tell you what the difference is in a second. The first person is someone whom you consider to be a positive person. And that's not to say that they are positive and upbeat and optimistic. <laughs> what it means is that when you think of this person, you have nothing but positive feelings, okay, positive emotions. Not to say good or bad emotions, but positive emotions. You just feel love. You feel connection. You feel happiness when you think about this person, okay? The next person you're going to think of, and you're going to do this one at a time. I'm just going to give you the three people, and I'm going to tell you what the practice is. But you're going to do them one at a time, not all three together. It's very important, okay? The next person is going to be a neutral person. Now, this is, by definition, somebody you don't know very well, right? Because as soon as we know somebody, we develop a, an emotional understanding of them, right? So there's always going to be a non-neutrality as soon as you know somebody pretty well, right? So you really want to look at somebody who is a, you know, like back in the day, I got called out on this the other day in a workshop, and I said a newsstand, a guy at the newsstand on your way to work, like that is such a New York thing. Anybody outside New York doesn't even know what that means, but when not, that's not completely true, but you know what I mean. Um, but but that would be the thing, right? Somebody who you see every morning, you say, oh, hey, Sam, you know, thanks for my New York Times. Have a good day, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm nice to Sam. Sam's nice to me, but I don't know Sam. I don't know if Sam's married. I don't know if Sam has children. I don't know where Sam lives. I don't know what he likes to eat for dinner. I don't know what his favorite television show is. I don't know what his religious or political beliefs. I don't know if he's a, a kind person or an unkind person, if he's just being nice to me. If it, I don't know any of this about Sam, right? So find the Sam in your life, right? Now, again, this could be a newsstand if you happen to live in New York, <laughs> although I don't think there's very many newsstands at all anymore. Um, but it could also be a clerk in a store, right? It could be someone at the post office, or it could be the letter carrier of your neighborhood. It could be somebody who lives down the street you, you never really got to know, right? Somebody in another department at work, that kind of thing, right? There's lots of neutral people around us, <laughs> okay? So you're going to find one of those. 
Then the third person, you can probably see this coming, is going to be what we consider a negative person, right? Somebody who has, you know, maybe done us wrong or makes us feel uncomfortable or makes us, you know, trigger some sort of negative emotion, right? Now, the key to this practice, though, before I go any further, a little disclaimer, when you're starting out with any of these practices, okay, start that third person, it's really crucial that you don't go to somebody who is involved with trauma, right? Or somebody who's really hurt you before, okay? You want to work with, you know, the person who, you know, the annoying person in the accounting department at work, right? Or, or the, uh, you know, the, the neighbor who doesn't, who's too loud upstairs, right? Or like we have neighbors who every morning they're, they're, you know, four kids, they're like screaming and, you know, we're all homeschooled here. So we don't have to get up at 7am like these kids do. And they're out of their house at 7am and screaming and we're hearing it like that. Okay. Like I, I don't want any harm to come to them, but uh, it gets under my skin. Right. Okay. So now normally in a, in a practice of loving kindness, right there, what we would do is we would picture each of these people. And now I always add a twist to it, but, but first I'll just give it to you straight. We would picture each of these people. And, and so you picture the first person, the I always go positive first. Positive, neutral, negative, always. Do not ever veer from that, okay? <laughs> I mean, you can, but really it's the way to go. Um, because you're priming yourself with it. There's a lot behind that. I'll explain that another time. <laughs> the, the loving kindness form of this practice would be to picture each of these people. Again, picture the first person. Wish the phrases of loving kindness to this person, something along the lines of, may you be well, may you be free from suffering, may you be happy, right? I have six that I use. You can use three or six. You can look some up. You can make some up. But that would be the idea. And then after you've repeated those phrases to the positive person, now you picture the ne the, uh, the neutral person and you repeat those same phrases to that person. Then you pick the 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 ne the negative person and you repeat the same phrases to them, right? Now, we can use this same structure as a compassion practice, right? Now, what this means is that instead of just issue just, you know, repeating those statements to this person, what you're going to do is you're going to actually picture this person suffering. Now, again, low-level suffering, right? Picture them spilling coffee on their shirt when they have a, an important meeting, right? Not losing their, you know, family in a fire or something like that, right? Nothing traumatic, but something, you know, low-level, like, you know, like annoyance kind of suffering, okay? At least in the beginning. Ultimately, yes, you can take in the worst suffering, but you got to work up to that, okay? So when it's compassion, remember what compassion is. Compassion is suffering with, okay? So in compassion, instead of just reading those or repeating those phrases, you're actually going to picture the person suffering. And then after you've pictured them suffering, you're going to picture relieving that suffering somehow. Even if that just means telling them, I see your suffering, I hope it comes to an end. Right. It's not about like picturing yourself rushing out and buying them a new shirt. Right. That's not the idea. It's just, you know, being with them in their emotional suffering. OK, so you do that with the positive person. You do that with the neutral person and then you do that with the, the negative person. So the way that we could practice this with sympathetic joy is kind of the opposite of the of the uh, compassion, right? So now I picture this positive person in my in my world, right? 
And I picture them beaming a smile. And I picture them doing something that they love to do, right? Like, let's say, you know, let's say there's a certain friend who, you know, the person that you're thinking of is this positive person is somebody who loves their cat, right? So you would picture them just having the most beautiful little, you know, purring cat hug petting thing going on, right? Or if it's somebody who loves to hike, picture them having the most amazing hike of their entire lives. Just, you know, the weather was perfect. The terrain was perfect. There was nobody else around. They were with their best friend. It was perfect, right? Now, of course, you don't know what that is about the, the neutral person or the necessarily the negative person, but that's okay. You can make it up, you know, just picture them doing something that brings them joy. And then what you do is as you're, as you're picturing that, Feel your body feeling their joy, right? Just sense into your body, specifically in the chest area. That's where most of our emotions start, right? And then picture where else you feel it. Do you feel any tingling? Do you feel like goosebumps? Do you feel, you know, vibrations of any sort? What do you feel in the face of this beautiful moment of joy that you're witnessing for this person? Do that with the positive person, do that with the neutral person, do that with the negative person, all right? So as I said, in the, in the loving kindness and the um, suffering, you know, the, the compassion, and it kind of is built into what we did with the sympathetic joy, but, but with those first two, what I like to do also, and the way I teach this practice is, before you go into the, into the, um, you know, wishing loving kindness or picturing the suffering and wishing for the end of the suffering first. And you can do this in the, in the, in the sympathetic joy practice too. But, but the first thing you want to do is you want to, you want to just sit for a moment and recognize that this person you're picturing, whether it's the positive, the neutral, or the negative person, they are a human being just like you are, right? They have things that make them happy. They have things that make them scared. They have things that make them sad. They have all known times of great pleasure and they've all known times of pain. Just like you. Just like you, they have desires. They have hopes. They have dreams. Just like you, they want to be happy. Just like you, they want not to suffer. Just like you, they want to be safe. So spending a few moments and just recognizing this sameness that we have with one another, what this does is this opens up those processes and those systems of empathy, okay? Because empathy, and this is certainly tied into, you know, implicit racial bias or implicit biases of all kinds, but, but it's been scientifically um, studied that, that we feel empathy more readily for those who we feel are like us, right? Now, again, on the negative side of things, that's nationalism and, and, and bigotry and chauvinism and, and racism, right? But it's the real, it's the way it works. So what we have to do is, again, we can associate that with something that's not those implicit biases, right? And we can hack ourselves doing that by, by simply, you know, recognizing that even though this person doesn't look like me, even though they're not from the same place as me, even though they don't have the same shared experience as me, they have emotions just like I do. They have suffering just like I do. They have, you know, the need to wake up in the morning and go to work and do all the things in their lives just like I do. And so this creates an understanding of sameness 
that's beyond the veneer of what we perceive as difference. Okay, and this is really what these practices are all about, whether we want to talk about the four heavenly abodes or just compassion or empathy. It's about recognizing or, or, or seeing past the delusion of separateness. Because we all very much are the same. We're made of the same stuff. We're going through the same process. We're going through the same experiences. And so if we can practice seeing that sameness, it helps us to cultivate that level of connection. And that level of connection ultimately is healthy for us and, and will, will provide us with more well-being. This is part of the skill of well-being. The skill is seeing that things are not separate, that things are actually very much connected. All right, folks, I hope you enjoyed this today. I hope it was uh, informative and I hope uh, I hope my caffeine, I feel like I'm talking very fast <laughs> as a result of my good caffeine that ironically in a <laughs> cup that says, don't hurry, be happy. <laughs> Anyway, I'll be off for a couple of days, so I miss you, and I will be thinking of you, and I hope to have a really beautiful uh, episode ready to go on Wednesday uh, to share with you, all right? I wish you all well. I hope you're, uh, if you're feeling tired like I am tonight, I hope tonight brings you lots of good rest, and that tomorrow brings you a sense of relief. Hi, everybody. Have a good day. I wish you well.